0: Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Harrison Ford, Kate Capshaw, and Jonathan Hoi Kwan. I hope I got that right. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we are finishing the original Indiana Jones trilogy with The Last Crusade, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Connery, Julian Glover, and Denholm Elliott. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there, so check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, Dad, this is the second movie in the original Indiana Jones trilogy, and you were in high school, college about this time? What do you remember about this franchise? College. I was, uh, It was 1984,
1: so... Well, first of all, I know that there was a trilogy of films, although there actually is four of them, so it's not really a trilogy. That's why
0: I said original trilogy, Ah. because, I mean, there's a big gap between 1989 and 2007.
1: Yeah, well, when I was, uh, I was in college at the time, so this came out the summer between my uh, sophomore and junior year of college. I went to the theater, saw it, and I remember going, and quite frankly, um, (laughs) I'll admit, I don't think I've seen the film since it was released and I saw it at the theaters.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't put a thumb on where I might have seen this before, or I guess not before, but for the first time. So it's just something that I have remembered watching. I would say that out of the four Indiana Jones movies, most people will put Raiders 1, probably Last Crusade 2, Temple of Doom, kind of there's a gap between that and the other two as number three, and then there's a large gap where people won't even recognize Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, including myself, (laughs) as part of the Indiana Jones lore. I think we might be forced to with this new movie that's supposedly coming out that I think they're still filming because... Harrison Ford got hurt again on the set. But that's what happens when you have a 70-year-old man doing action stunts. Well, I I, I have uh, the working title for
1: Indiana Jones 6. Indiana Jones and the Search for the Aluminum
0: Walker. Why couldn't you have just done the remote?
1: <laughs>
0: uh, regardless of any of that. This is clearly a defining character of cinema. It was voted, I think we said in the last episode, as AFI's number two hero of all time. So what is it that makes Indiana Jones such an endearing character? Is it simply Harrison Ford's charisma or is there something else? Well, Harrison Ford
1: is Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones is Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford has this it's that wry little smile that he has sometimes when he's up to no or no good, or a little bit of mischief. That's Indiana Jones. That's the whole character of Indiana Jones. It's a cross between him being a funny character and a badass. And that's what makes him so appealing, is because he's not always a badass and he's not always comical. He is a blend of the two. And it is able to draw out the intensity and the drama, the suspense, and then break it up with a little bit of comedy and then go back into it and be suspenseful again, and then a little bit of comedy. And it, it, that's what makes it so
0: enjoyable. So in thinking about this again this week, and I know we kind of related – The formula for the original Raiders was more based on the serials that you'd have these basically 10-minute clips, but they were all strung together to make a two-hour movie instead of just these small bite-sized episodes. And so they reused that format pretty much for every film since. However, this reminds me a lot of something similar to, like, Buster Keaton in The General that he's kind of chasing after stuff and there's very small pieces of this movie that you could break apart and make into individual episodes by themselves. But this is also something that he's kind of almost superhero-like in that he just gets incredibly lucky on most occasions.
1: It's kind of almost the equivalent of James Bond, which is, you know, until Daniel Craig, which is James Bond could have a fist fight and, and beat the, be beaten up and beat somebody else up and then kind of fluff his jacket and he's ready to go. There's not a mark on him. There's no way half of what Harrison Ford or what Indiana Jones goes through in these films could really happen without him having some need for some significant medical treatment.
0: Well, I mean, just remembering the truck scene or the truck chase from the first one, he gets shot in the arm and then the guy's like repeatedly punching him in the arm where he got shot. I mean, yes. that alone, you would think that there's a significant level of trauma that he would almost pass out from. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it is almost fantastical in the way that these stories are constructed. And yet you're gripped and still kind of on the edge of your seat no matter how many times you've seen them
1: well and that's the whole that's the beauty of it which is it is fantastical i mean it this is movies and you realize it's movies so you kind of give it an excuse it's not completely
0: believable so let's get to some context for the movie do you have your plot summary ready i do in 1935 indiana
1: jones harrison ford survives a crooked deal gone sideways with crime boss Lao Chi in Shanghai with fellow travelers Short Round, Jonathan Key Kwan, and nightclub uh, singer Willie Scott, Kate Capshaw, arriving in the village of Mayapur in northern India. Unfortunately, the village appears to have been struck by plague due to the loss of their sacred stone, Shivalinga, stolen from their shrine. The villagers plead for aid, and retrieving the stone along with their missing children from the evil forces of the nearby Pancott Palace, where a new Maharaja has been seated. Indiana's questions about the mysterious Thungi cult are real, and he, Willie, and Short Round race to survive the Temple of Doom.
0: Thank you. Cast for this movie, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, Kate Capshaw as Willie Scott, Amrish Puri as Mola Ram, Roshan Seth as Chatter Lal, Philip Stone as Captain Philip Blumberd, Jonathan Kee as Short Round, Raj Singh, dubbed by Katie Lee, portrays Zalim Singh, the Maharaja, Roy Chow plays Lau Che. Recognition for this movie, it was nominated for Best Original Score and won Best Visual Effects at the 1985 Academy Awards. In response to some of the more violent sequences in the film, and with similar complaints about gremlins, Spielberg suggested that the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, alter its rating systems by introducing an intermediary between the PG and R ratings. The MPAA concurred, and a new PG-13 rating was introduced two months after the film's release. Temple of Doom was released on May 23, 1984 in America, accumulating a record-breaking $45.7 million in its first week. The film went on to gross $333.1 million worldwide, with $180 million in North America and $153.1 million in other markets. The film had the highest opening weekend of 1984 and was that year's highest-grossing film, but only third in North America behind Beverly Hills Cop and Ghostbusters. It was also the 10th highest grossing film of all time during its release. Did you know? The three main characters are named after dogs. Short Round was named after screenwriter Willard Huck's dog, which was named after The Orphan in the Steel Helmet from 1951. Willie was named after Steven Spielberg's dog, and Indiana was named after George Lucas's dog. Did you know? Kate Capshaw had to be taught how to scream for this movie, and she screams a grand total of 71 times throughout the film. Did you know? Kate Capshaw was very critical of her own character, saying that Willie was not, quote, much more than a dumb screaming blonde, end quote. Did you know? D.R. Nanayakara, cast as the Indian village shaman, did not speak a word of English. He delivered his lines phonetically by mimicking Steven Spielberg, who was prompting him off camera. The pauses in his dialogue were therefore not for dramatic effect, but rather waiting for his next line. Did you know? For the bug chamber sequence, Kate Capshaw was really covered with over 2,000 insects. She took sedatives prior to the scene to get over her initial fear, and claimed they definitely worked. Did you know? Amrish Puri shaved his head for the role of Mola Ram. This created such an impression that he kept this look and became one of India's most popular film villains. Did you know? The nightclub in the opening scene is called Club Obi-Wan, an obvious homage to the Star Wars character. Did you know? The sounds of the mine car running along the tracks during the chase scene were recorded on the roller coasters at Disneyland, with the music and sound effects turned off. Did you know? The python that Willie Scott mistakes for an elephant's trunk was brought to Sri Lanka for shooting by animal handler Michael Culling. But since the snake and its companion weren't very welcome in the country, he had to book them their own hotel rooms under fake names, Mr. and Mrs. Longfellow. Uh, All right. So, Dad, what is this movie about? It's an action-adventure which further
1: develops the Indiana Jones character.
0: I head down, Adventure Seeker saves a small Indian village by finding their lost relic while dodging an ancient evil cult. I think that's a pretty good elevator pitch. Sure. So then, who was your best performance?
1: Well, okay. Harrison Ford. Hands down, because he's almost big chunk of the movie. I mean, it's not often that I then talk about one of the or one of the worst performances, which only the director's wife would have stood to play <laughs> uh, Willie. Because, well, she was
0: not his wife at the time. He was going through a divorce. Yeah, because
1: th- her character is abysmal. And there's no redeeming quality about her. And they should have just named her Screaming Blonde 1.
0: And it would have been perfectly fine and everybody would have understood. She's annoying, has almost no chemistry with Harrison Ford, is not believable as the love interest, and frankly, you don't understand through probably 90% of this film why he didn't leave her in the snow. (laughs) Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more on that one, but... I know that we went with best performance in the original episode of Raiders with Harrison Ford. And honestly, when it's Indiana Jones, it's hard not to put him. I thought about spreading it around. So then the next obvious candidate was Steven Spielberg. But in my research, he regards this as probably one of his poorest efforts and because he and both George Lucas at the time were going through divorces that this film turned out darker than he had really wanted it to he also <laughs> recognizes a lot of the mistakes that I'm sure we're going to get to particularly the dinner scene so I couldn't really go there so then I'm like all right I can't give it to Kate Capshaw I don't really think that I can give it to Jonathan Kequan even though he is not a signi- or is a significant part of this movie so who else can I go with And it's not that I'm by process of elimination giving it to him by default because I think he just deserves recognition, but I've recognized him so many other times as well. It just feels a little blunted. But to create such an iconic film score as Raiders and then to follow it up and get nominated yet again, I'm going to go with John Williams. I think this is a distinct film score to itself that really separates it. There really is a marriage with Indiana Jones and the Raiders march But he introduces so many other elements that really, I guess, give it a tone of different culturism. So Raiders is much more driving and dramatic and upbeat and bright, especially with a lot of horns or or brass instruments, whereas this was much more flute and wood instruments or woodwinds particularly for some of the sounds that were supposed to be, for lack of a better term, oriental sounding. I, I know that's not a, a classically looked upon term at this point, but I think that might be the best way of putting it, unfortunately. I just liked the way that it, it mimicked certain scenes and gave you a tone for the movie that seemed different and distinct, but really sort of enhanced everything that was going on. So I'm going to go with Jonathan or excuse me, John Williams. Okay. Best secondary performer. And this is the other one that was in contention for my best performer. I'll go with Amrish Puri or Mola Ram. He's probably one of the better villains when it comes to Indiana Jones movies. I think he's by far the most memorable of all the Indiana Jones movies, because realistically the Ark and I guess Belloc is the villain or the antagonist in the first one, but he doesn't seem as menacing or as threatening as Molo Ram, who can literally pull a guy's beating heart out. So I I really appreciated that, and I'm going to have more to say on that once we get into the the grading, but I I thought he was a wonderful performer in this one.
1: I went with uh, Jonathan Q. Juan. I think the kid was phenomenal for being a small kid. This was basically his first acting role. He's had kind of an interesting career since um, I had, or I looked him up. He's done. He's been a director, an assistant director, a stunt coordinator. He's done a, been a cinematographer in films. He's done acting. He's done television. So, but I think that uh, uh, he uh, provided a strong secondary per or actor or performer to Harrison
0: Ford in this film. He certainly is a memorable character. The only problem I might have with that is, and I don't think this is on him per se, I don't know whether or not that's a well-written character and not steering into a lot of Asian stereotypes, if that makes sense. I yes, It, it kind of straddles a fine line, and again, I don't think that has anything to do with him. I think he did the role as he was expected to. And as he probably knew how to do the the role, but I just, I'm uncertain. And probably because it has, it would not be offensive to me as a 31 year old white man, but it does create questions of how our depictions, particularly of Asian Americans or just Asian people in general is. And so I guess I don't know. I, I'll, Plead a level of ignorance on that one. So then we're left with Charismatic. Who was your most charismatic? Uh, John Williams. Interesting. Okay, that's that's a bit surprising for his Charismatic Award. Well, it, it just because the, the music
1: of the film is more memorable than the film.
0: I could have said that for Raiders. Because, or even for that matter, Jaws. I think he's created so many iconic scores. I don't think if you played a certain section that isn't the Raiders March that's reused in this one of Temple of Doom that people just automatically will know it in the same ways that they know some of these other ones that he's created. But I guess where, how are you making that charismatic? Because there's a certain element whether you
1: are just thinking it or you're humming it, there are certain times in this film where you are hearing the music even if the music is not playing. I know I catch myself where all of a sudden something
0: happens and I'm da-da-da-da, da-da-da, and you're expecting See, but, but that's the Raiders march. That's, that's reused. I'm thinking more of the da-da-da-da-da-da. Because that's more original to this particular film by comparison. I
1: understand. It's not like I, I can point to, quite frankly, a ton of performances that I go, oh, these are... I mean, it would have been easy for me to have just named Harrison Ford again, but...
0: Well, that's where I went. I think it's just obvious, but... I gave it to him almost out of default. I mean, who else is that appealing in this movie? (laughs) Yeah. You're not going to nominate the kid. I don't know if I would say Molaram was particularly charismatic, given that he's pulling guys' hearts out of their chests. The Maharaja, no. Uh, He's playing with voodoo dolls, oddly enough. Uh, so yeah, at that point, I, I'm at a loss to give it to anybody other than Harrison Ford, who looks stunningly great in this movie for, you know, just like a physical specimen that that guy could have cleaned up in the eighties. All right. So that takes us to best scene, the nominees that I'll put down, the airplane crash, the dinner scene, I'll name it the trap doors and bug rooms, Kali Ma. The Black Death of Kalima, and then the bridge fight. Are there any that you think I missed? The initial scene of arriving in the village. Okay.
1: Yeah, I could buy that. But otherwise, no, there isn't anything else. I guess, what would you
0: argue then is the best scene? Uh,
1: uh, the the final escape out of the temple. It's It's energetic. It's exciting. There's a level of suspense. It's by far, to me, the most put-together and the most well-designed scene in the
0: film. But I think that part has, like, three different... Or that, excuse me, that scene or that sequence has three different parts to it. There is the thug fight, where he's fighting the big guy. There is the bridge fight at the end. And then there's the mine car chase. Out of those, if you were to... dissect into one part of the other, which one are you describing? Being on the uh, mining carts and
1: that whole sequence is what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, I would agree that it is quite thrilling. It's interesting that I, I started to notice as I was watching it how long that sequence actually is. Because you're talking about, I think that it's at least a good five minute scene where he's in the fight with the guy and then he ends up getting crushed to death. Then you have the mine car scene, which I swear it has to be like 10 minutes by itself. And then the bridge fight is like the last 10 minutes of the movie. So I think that's about the last half an hour of the movie is essentially just them escaping. Yes. From a technical standpoint, you're talking about the music and the score. You're talking about, as we mentioned before in the Did You Know section, the sound effects. You're talking about the editing For the minecart. So, from a technical standpoint, I would agree. I think from a writing standpoint, there aren't any particular scenes that stick out to me. You're burying the exposition in that dinner scene, which I think is one of the more controversial ones. And again, we're going to get to that when we get into the, the actual grading. What that leaves me with is what I would say is probably my favorite and the most indelible, and that's the Kalima scene. The first glances that we get of the thuggy and the thuggy ceremony where and I've mentioned it now a handful of times already, but Molo Ram pulling the guy's heart out is terrifying. Like if you're seeing that as a 10 year old kid in the theater for the first time, I mean, that that's got to be making you shit your pants. You didn't even know that that was possible in a film and the way that they're able to pull off that level of a a stunt and then have the heart literally explode on fire in his hand. I mean, that's just outstanding. And it's the thing that I think pop culturally that most people call back to about this particular film. There are a couple of other references from some of the other ones. I think the most often referenced one is Raiders, you know, with obvious reasons. Crusade gets a few references here or there, but occasionally, and if you're going to get something pop-culturally that is bigger than the movie, it's usually the Kalima.
1: I, I agree that that was a very terrifying point. And I, and I remember that, scene, that group of scenes and then the banquet itself were a point I, I used to watch while I was in college because it came on right before I would go to dinner. And then I watched it in the summer as well, when I was home for the summer, before dinner, was uh, Entertainment Tonight. And those scenes were, they did like a week-long piece talking about the need for this PG-13, citing those as being well beyond what uh, normal children should be uh, watching without having parents involved
0: or knowing what's going on. Yeah, there's an incredibly large amount of violence in this movie. I mean, you have a good amount in Raiders, but this one took it to a new level that I, I agree. There there should have been a difference in uh, what you could subject a five-year-old to versus a 13-year-old. I don't know if they can handle what happens in that scene. So I already nominated that, though, as my most indelible and favorite, but what would you say then is... Your favorite and most indelible?
1: Well, it's the uh, escape on the cart or on the uh, mining carts. And the most indelible is that banquet. That banquet just still, that was the part, the one part of the film that having not seen this in probably 30 years or more, 35 years, uh, that I still remembered. And I'm going, ugh, the chilled monkey brains. And the eyeball soup and all of that just was,
0: it uh, did not leave my stomach feeling well. I certainly can't say that it did for me either. And I also understand fully that uh, if that were described how my culture is or how people saw my culture for 20 years, that I'd be a little upset too. Yeah,
1: well... I think on the fam- our, our family text that we have going line, somebody had posted on Reddit a, um, a list, or it was on Twitter, a list of uh, things that, uh, you know, whether you've tried them or not, and they had a whole list of different strange or exotic foods um, that people would, you know, not try. And Quite frankly, the list was, I think I had consumed 24 of the 30, you know, it was things like squid and octopus and some, uh, some other things like that, uh, beef tartar turtle. So I've, I've been adventuresome and I've had to be at times, uh, having traveled as much as I have, especially in, in, uh, Asia where the tastes are a little different.
0: But this still grossed me out. (laughs) I just, I... And that's the intention of the scene. Yeah. Well, before we get more into that one, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, before we get into Best Funniest Lines, do we have anyone to remember this week?
1: Uh, Yes, Una Stubbs. British uh, actress, best known more for TV work, but she did some movies. Death Do Us Part uh, was a TV show. And then more well-known as uh, the landlady in Sherlock. She had uh, been friends with Benedict Cumberbatch's mother and had known Cumberbatch since he was four years old and got to play Mrs. Hudson. On, uh, on the TV show. She uh, passed away this week.
0: Yeah, and it's really too bad. I know the show has had longer and longer gaps as both Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch are doing other things, particularly in the Marvel universe, but also Martin Freeman had that three-movie deal doing the Hobbit movies. So we haven't gotten as much Sherlock, but I think she's probably the most notable Mrs. Hudson of all the iterations we've had of Sherlock to this point, most of them are just background characters that might say a line or two. And she's just kind of a periphery character. Whereas in Sherlock, she's somewhat of an active character. And so for her to pass away, you know, now while we're in kind of this no man's land, I know that both of the actors have said they would like to return to it at some point. I just don't know when that's going to be because of all of their other obligations, because they just became big stars, but you know, how they're going to handle that. And unfortunately that's the reality of what we've been dealing with over the last, I don't know, 10 years that actors who are well known for particular TV shows or characters that we just love spending time with have passed away. And we're going to need to deal with what those characters in those universes are going to be like without them especially as TV and movies kind of blend together and we have these more continuing universes. So I would definitely recommend the uh, TV show Sherlock to begin with, but this week I would especially do so because uh, we'd love to remember her performance in that show. I think all four seasons, I'm pretty sure it's four, are available, I think, on Netflix yet. So certainly, at least in the United States, uh, you can search the Real Good app in order to find wherever else it's streaming but i would take some time and spend um, either catching up on that show or maybe re-watching it because i know both of us have really enjoyed it and uh, we take a moment of silence now in her memory thank you all right best funniest lines first one i had down And this was actually a very difficult movie for me to find lines that I really thought were worthy of pulling out. This wasn't as good of a dialogued movie as the first one. I think Lawrence Kasdan is a much better dialogue writer than, I think it's, what was it? Willard Huck. Willard Huck. Regardless, what is Shankara? Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. A short round. I keep telling
1: you, you listen to me more. You live longer. I've been saying that for
0: decades. As have I. I've told you all repeatedly that, well, maybe not quite in that way, but the world would be a better place if people just listened to me. I've been saying that since you were born. I don't remember you saying that. I do remember saying that you were the, what, second or third smartest
1: man alive? Second.
0: Second smartest man in the world behind only God? Well,
1: no, Jesus. Because Jesus is... God's not man. But you know, they're there and then I'm right below. And as children, that's all you needed to know.
0: Next one I head down. Kalima! Kalima! Uh, Willie Scott. Hey, I can't go to Padcott. I'm a singer. I need to call my agent. Dr. Jones, wasn't it the Sultan of Madagascar who threatened to cut off your head if you ever returned to his country? No, it wasn't my head. Then your hands, perhaps. No, it wasn't my hands. It was my. Looks down between his legs. My misunderstanding. Indiana Jones, that wasn't so bad, was it? You're saying it's sultry like, but that was after they uh, floated down in the raft. <laughs> Indiana Jones, wear your jewels to bed, princess. Yeah, and nothing else. Shock you? Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. Now, that by itself seems just dumb, but I actually thought that the writing of the subsequent dialogue after that was actually pretty good. I just couldn't find the location to like uh, actually print that off because there, there was some... Uh, Almost James Bond-level quippiness going on in that next part. So go back and watch that if you uh, haven't watched the movie yet. Any other lines to nominate? I have none. I don't either. So out of those, best, funniest line? Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. I'd probably go with Kali Mob, personally, but... Funniest line to me was the one I pulled out before. It wasn't my hands. Yeah. I I thought that was actually a pretty decent exposition there. Uh, All right. It was good. Stanley rubric time. Uh, Legacy first up. Do you want to go first or you want me? Go ahead. All right. If for nothing else, creating the PG-13 rating would be a huge legacy for most movies, but this made Indiana Jones from a solo movie into a franchise that was clearly bankable. Mixed reviews be damned, this does have a exponential factor because we got Last Crusade, we got Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, we've got another movie coming eventually. So the continued batting average of George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Harrison Ford while we forget a fourth movie from 2007, that's already been brought up too much on this podcast for my taste. I still think that the legacy as a character, as a franchise is expanded by what I would say ultimately is a successful second movie, even if it's not treated as one of the top of this franchise. So I think because there is that fourth movie that some of the sins of this movie kind of get minimized and it gets a little bit of the Hoover outlive the bastards treatment in the culture at large. So I'm going to go with 3.5 for the industry. I'll go 2.5 for the audience for a six overall.
1: I went with a, I, I went with the industry. I went with a five simply because I was having a hard time thinking of another movie. Franchise, so to speak Without it being a complete sequel And we're not going to discuss Jaws 2, 3, 4, 5, 7 Sharknado
0: Star Wars had Empire before this
1: Yes, I understand that But it was a It was a true sequel It was a film that built on the last one other than the character and the general placement, this was actually a prequel a year before the previous film, so that it stood independently and on its own, but the character transcend. Also, just the fact of the PG-13, I think, was huge. I think it really highlighted a significant limitation in the whole concept of, of movie ratings. Um, they, since the movie rating system had been implemented in 1968, this was the first change that was made, and the only one of two changes total. 1990, they did away with the rating of X and replaced it with NC-17 because X had been deemed too attuned with pornographic material. So they did away with it. but so I for that reason I went with a five. Now as far as legacy for the public, I think this film far is uh, not in the scope or mind of the public. It wasn't in the my mind Raiders and then uh, last Crusade and I and I'll maybe tip but uh, the fact that Harrison Ford actually had somebody as... Capable as himself of filling the screen to share it with was a huge factor. And so I think this film falls as a result of the, the success of the first and the third. So I went with a 2.5 for a 7.5 total.
0: Okay. So that's a 6.75 between us on an average. Impact significance. Uh, let's see or what you got. Well, as
1: far as industry itself goes, I I don't think it had a huge impact on, on movies, movie making in general. So for the industry, I went with a 2.5. And while it drew well, and I remember going and seeing it, having lived through that summer, it was not nearly as popular as Ghostbusters and uh, Beverly Hills Cop. They were by far what everyone was discussing and talking about. And as a result, I went there with a three. And I only went to three because it did draw audiences and did uh, have a large box office. So therefore, I went with a 5.5.
0: 0.5. Okay. So. I was going to give this a two in the industry side due to mixed reviews, little awards attention, and it was notably panned at the time, primarily because of its dark nature that Temple of Doom needed to create the PG-13 label, but it's still impactful. I mean, PG-13 and whether something is PG, PG-13, even deserving of an R rating is discussed in how movie cultures is still going about. So just on a short-term impact, the fact that this needed one less than two months after it was released, and given that the first one had been in theaters for so long, this thing had a tail. And yes, I may agree with you that, okay, Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop might have been bigger movies, I guess, among the talking culture. The fact that this was still a high-grossing performer does give it some oomph, if you will. So even though the PG-13 thing is maybe a negative impact I still think it causes an impact that has some significance well after the fact so I ended up at a 2.5 for the industry because overall it's creating another franchise in the 80s where we were just getting to the point of creating franchises just from that standpoint you're continuing on the character I don't think you can completely dismiss it but because it was such a big box office thing and I do take your comment to heart a bit. I just, you can't really argue with some of the numbers that were there from an audience share. I ended up going with a four on that for a 6.5 total. So that'll end up being a six between us. All right. Novelty. And this is one where I think that in recent shows, listening back to them, that I think you've been a little too critical. If something is not, not, Completely original. And so I I have a feeling that you're going to give this one demerits primarily on the standpoint that it is a sequel. The one thing I will draw upon is while it's not completely reinventing the wheel with Indiana Jones as the character, it is novel from the standpoint of everything around him. They take a lot of chances in this movie by making it somewhat of a prequel by not involving the Nazis, which was why it was a prequel. Apparently, George Lucas didn't want them to be the primary villain. He wanted to kind of mix it up. Actually, this is one of the more diversified casts for a franchise movie of the time. You had a lot of Indian actors and legitimate Indian actors. You had several Asian-American actors in the roles. So you really actually had some of the things that we commonly criticize about some of the other movies and kind of made them endearing characters on their own to a franchise that at the time was one of the biggest around. I mean, Raiders was a huge movie. So to really come out swinging on this one and, and take the chances, of I mean, the primary villain in this one has nothing to do with Western culture at all. You're expecting audiences to buy into a ancient cult called the Thuggy, which I think is a little too on the nose, if you ask me. That has to do with Hindi religion and the Shankara stones, which you're either going to need a lot of explanation for in the course of the movie, or people are just going to look past it and say, okay, we're hunting for some magical rocks. And that's all it has to be. So I think from that standpoint, it is kind of daring that you're taking what would be a huge property and making some very bold choices. I, I went with a seventh. Well, I'm going to
1: make the math a little difficult for you. I I went with a seven, simply because this film is a standalone film, and it is a prequel, and it uh, tries to fill in some of the gaps of who Indiana Jones was and what made him the character he was in the first film. As a result, I thought that was kind of a bold choice. As a result, I think it went far beyond what I would have expected. And so that's why I generally go with that. And so that's why I went with a seven. Interesting. Do you need help with
0: the math? No, I think I got this one. Uh, Seven, I think is the average. Okay. Classicness. I always let you go first, so have a way. I always start at five and go up or down from that.
1: And your comments a few minutes ago were prescient. There was a lot of diversity in this cast. A lot more diversity and cast of any film I remember seeing in the 1980s. And as a result, I thought it was well done. I mean, it wasn't like they were trying to pigeonhole,
0: you know, it's not Mickey Rooney (laughs) from Breakfast (laughs) at Tiffany. no. Very far from that. Yeah. And so. It's not even Long Dong Duck from 16 Candles. <laughs> yeah. Same year, by the way.
1: Oh, yeah, I guess it was, wasn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. So, I, I actually gave it fairly high marks for classicness. Uh, the um, The portrayal, I think, was overdone of Indian or of Southeast Asian culture. Is they're all about eating these weird things that Westerners would never touch, and that went way beyond what it should be. I mean, you know, I mean, I've, I've 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 spent time in China, and yes, they do have duck feet soup, and with duck feet in the soup, you know, but it's not like you eat the duck feet; you just eat the soup. Which, when you think about it, how much worse is it than any like throwing bones into? soup in order to get the, the flavor. So I gave it some points down because of the over-the-top aspect of the food in the uh, in the banquet scene. So I went with an eight.
0: Interesting. You and I are going to be off on this one. I actually went in a couple of different directions that you didn't mention. Yes, the diversity of this cast does probably give it a boost up. And I normally started at a seven, not a five like you do. So I want to say that that is daring by itself and probably should be rewarded with an additional point in my scale. But there are some definite problems and it's not just the banquet scene. Although I think that is a major issue with this movie because as bad as what I, I guess we've had in The Reckoning that was the Apu character from just The Simpsons, can you imagine what this movie did to every kid that went to school with either an Asian American kid or an Indian kid for like 20 years until we knew better or at least started to feel better. Oh, you eat uh, eyeball soup and all the stupid things and mean things that kids would say to each other. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I got to imagine it. Life was pretty tough because of this movie. And I know that it wasn't necessarily the intention, but it was kind of sloppy if you ask me. Yeah. So, there's, a, there's just one big part, part of it, but the Willie character, that is just one of the worst written female <laughs> heroines. As much as we criticized for Karen Allen just being a damsel the whole time, like, this is almost farcical? <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I don't understand why she's in this movie. Like, not just Kate Capshaw, just the character. The movie would work just fine without Indiana Jones having a love interest. Like, his relationship with the kid would be just rewarding enough. I actually thought that was some of the best emotional parts of the movie is short round and, you know, you're my best friend, Indy. I love you. You know, that by itself would have worked on the heartstrings of America, but we had to somehow throw a blonde woman into the middle of this movie to do what? She's just there to basically be a a pawn in everything else that's going on. Did we really need... Her as a bystander to be lowered down into the lava pit, like that's, yeah, I I just don't understand her at all. And then finally, if you're going to pick on this movie for something, this might be one of the worst cases of white savior. The uh, American Dr. Jones shows up in the Indian village and he's sent by Shiva to rescue them. And he's the only person that can like, they have no agency whatsoever. They don't even help him. Like, I think they have a couple of guides up to about the door of Pencott Palace, and then they just, like, leave him on his own, and he's supposed to rescue their village and all of their children? Like, there's hundreds of children. How many... But there's, what, <laughs> 20, 30 villagers? Are all of those villagers having, like, 30 kids? I mean, I know India is a rather uh, large population country, but uh, I mean, come on, uh, this, this just doesn't make sense to me. If you're going to have him be the leader for the cause, you should at least like have one or two people go with him. That's where you could have written in a female character that makes more sense, like his guide or something else. That would have been a better movie and a better character that she may have been stronger because she was the one drafted to help save the village. Anyway, that's 21st century thinking for a mid-80s movie. But regardless, I ended up at a 5 for this, to be honest.
1: So I'm at 5, you're at 7, so do you need
0: help with that one? You mean you're at 8 and I'm at 5? Oh, sure. Well, that's a 6.5 between us. Wow. Rewatchability. Since I'm a little bit more favorable on this franchise just generally than you are, I'll take this one first. It's probably third on my list of watchables. I honestly haven't watched this one nearly as much. I think Raiders by itself, I've probably watched twice as much as the rest of the movies combined. So there's a reason why that one finished. I think it was either a 9.5 or a 10 for me last week. This one, I enjoy it. I actually find myself enjoying it a little bit more this rewatch through. But it's not one I'm going to visit very often, and certainly not as much as Raiders. It's not quite a seven that I relate with some of the better quality films that I think I should probably watch more. So I ended up going with a uh,
1: 6.5. My standard is I give a two to rewatchability if it's a film that I will, if absolutely forced to, rewatch. A five is a film that I like to rewatch, but on a very limited basis. This film I hadn't seen since I saw in the movie theater and having watched it, I large portions of I had forgotten about. And by the time I was done, I realized why I hadn't seen it again. It was like dark. It was ominous. It was not nearly as much fun as the, uh, as, uh, film one and three and as a result this would not be one that I would like to rewatch very often. If somebody says, hey, let's rewatch it, okay, I guess I can re-watch it. So to that extent I went with a four. It's a it's a decent film. I'm not criticizing it for that. It's just that there's just nothing in this that I would go, oh yeah, I need to rewatch this or I need to Donate the two hours to it again sometime in the near future.
0: All right. Just to recap then, we have a 6.75 for Legacy, a 6 for Impact Significance, a 7 for Novelty, a 6.5 for Classicness. The last category with your score makes it a 5.25 average between us. And then finally, for Audience Score, we had an 89% for Google users and 81% for Rotten Tomato users. Uh that gave us an eight point five overall for eighty five percent and all told that adds up to forty total points on the rubric and that slots it in at number sixty six currently in between inglorious bastards and mr. Roberts all right so on the bottom quarter of the uh, list so far, sure
1: all right remaining questions for you what happened to Willie Scott? All that screaming. How in the world is she going to go back to a singing career?
0: <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe that was her singing.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, Pre-Black
0: Sabbath? No, I actually think this might have been after. Oh, well, I mean, I, I guess in the, the course movie of the movie. Set, would have yeah, been. it was taking place in 35. Oh. Uh, how did the thuggy come back in the first place? Like, they clearly built up power, but it's like they had some weird underground plot that was completely unbeknownst to everybody. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they stole an election. <laughs> you got any others? No. If Indiana only cut one side of the bridge, why did it tear in half? Wouldn't the, like, bridge just, like, pivot downward and everybody would be hanging from the one rope? Yes. Yes. I don't know. That one has never made sense to me. And then finally, and this was remarkable to me because I'm like, this has got to be a plot hole. Why did the pilots need to fly into the Himalayas like several hundred miles just to crash the plane? Wouldn't you like get it up to a certain height and then just let it go?
1: Well, you wouldn't want to crash it over the water because you parachute, you've got nothing. Okay, so... I mean, if you, you also, if you parachute out and you're not that high, or you're too high, I guess, then you're going to suffocate when you jump out of the plane.
0: I don't know. It, it just doesn't make sense to me that if their whole aim was, in the end, to jump out of the plane and crash it so that Indiana Jones couldn't escape, why you have to go that far just to, to do it? And basically, it's just a plot de- delivery point that it uh, essentially causes them to end up in India. But come on. All right, so that was my remaining questions. If you don't have any, uh, last thoughts for the week? Uh, None, really. I'm looking forward to next week's
1: episode because I enjoy that film, and uh, as I've indicated, it's because of the secondary performance.
0: Yeah, I actually think that the villain is a little bit better formed than even in Raiders, although it does give you some questions that I'm sure we're going to bring up, like, hmm, why the Nazi doctor uh, would be both attracted to Indiana Jones and his father, but then again, it's Harrison Ford and Sean Connery, arguably two of the sexiest men ever alive. Yes,
1: uh, Joseph Kennedy and John Kennedy each shared a mistress, so...
0: Hey, well, thanks for that uncomfortable thought. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Yeah, I don't have any other great thoughts this week other than this is going to be episode 79. We're going to finish up with episode 80, and then we only have one other episode before we get to our month of Bond, looking forward to No Time to Die, while we're actually on vacation. So we're going to be off with some of the Stuff that needs to be updated, so we're going to have a long list, I'm sure, of people when we get back for the In Memoriam, but... Hopefully not. Yeah, okay, I shouldn't wish that, I I suppose. But we have some very exciting movies coming up to end the year. Yes. I had not announced this publicly, but we've had this plan of what to do for December for a while. And we have three Christmas movies back-to-back, the last two of which... Are going to cause quite an argument on the show. I'm not ready to say what they are quite yet, but we at least have one guest lined up for, or one of the episodes. We'll see one what of else them happens. Is not a Christmas movie. Then the other one is not either.
1: Yes, it is because it's the spirit of Christmas.
0: There is no such thing. Yes, there is. Okay, you're mistaking Christmas movies with. Movies that take place at Christmas. So either they're all Christmas movies or they're not.
1: There has to be a Christmas theme. Having It's not a Christmas movie if the movie is, takes place at Christmas and it's basically shoot them up and kill them.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. We've already dropped enough hints. So the two Christmas movies back-to-back, because I thought this would be a great <laughs> way to develop the show Die hard, and it's a wonderful life. So you have that to look forward to.
1: (laughs) Yes, this is what I have to live with.
0: Every day, folks. Every day. Yeah. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we are finishing the original Indiana Jones trilogy with The Last Crusade, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Connery, Julian Glover, and Denholm Elliott. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever, on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find us on Twitter at gmotepodcast